well. Okay, so the meet and confer is on uh, essentially via the subpoena to Liberty University, your position that the emails on our privilege log and possibly others that I don't know about, uh, although I'm pretty confident that there are no others, um, are not subject to the attorney-client privilege or the work product doctrine. That's the agenda well, for the day, yes? Yeah, uh, yes, I agree. That's what you asked for the meeting and for about, is about the subpoena delivery. Okay, so as a formal matter, um, I'm going to tell you that um, we consider these documents privileged. So if in fact you get them through some mechanism or timetable uh, prior to filing with the judge on a motion to quash or a motion for protective order, um, that um, you should treat them as privileged and delete them or otherwise segregate them and not utilize or view them at all until the judge has an opportunity to rule. So that's number one. Number two, I'm not certain I understand your position. What is it about the university email server policies do you claim you've sent me two cases, one of which was a child pornography case, and another was a marital privilege case. Um, I'm, but you don't reference Liberty University server policies vis-a-vis -vis the attorney-client privilege or policies at all. So if you can clarify to me what your position is, I'll see if I can articulate our position. Sure. Before I do that, I, I wanted to ask you a question, and I don't mean this flippantly. I am curious what your position is on Richard, on Richard Mast's interest in quashing the subpoena to Liberty University, contrasted against Joshua and Stephanie Mast's interest as the privilege holders. My understanding is... And, I, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I think if, if I'm wrong, it may require additional conversation about Richard Mass privilege law. My understanding is that the communications you've identified on the privilege log are communications in which Rich, Richard Mast is counsel to Joshua and Stephanie, and that the privilege log does not also include communications where Richard Mast is the client for another attorney. And the reason I raise that is because the subpoena calls only for communications sent to or from Joshua and Stephanie Mast. And then it lists a number of email addresses. One of them is, it, which includes Richard Mast's email address, but I guess to cut straight to the point, is it your view that Richard Mast as their attorney has 
uh, effectively standing to step in and assert the privilege that they hold as the clients. Yes, on behalf of his client. Plus, he has attorney work product doctrine. The attorney work product doctrine resides with the attorney. So both on his own behalf, and I thought I was fairly clear about that in my email. As to the work product doctrine, he's asserting his own work product doctrine. But the communications wouldn't, I mean, I can pull up the privilege log again, but were you claiming work product protection, like solely work product protection, as opposed to in addition to attorney client privilege, but solely work product protection or communications between Richard and Joshua? No, we're my recollection was that the work where 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 on the log work product stood alone as the as the only reason that that was a communication between Richard and someone else other than his client. Which would not be covered by. The subpoena, because the subpoena, again, is the universe is contained as only communications where it's to or from Joshua and Stephanie. Right, well, and a, and a communication to a client, and I believe there, I don't have that privilege log in front of me, but I don't need it in front of me to say that, and certainly communications between Richard and his client, his brother or sister-in-law, um, would fall within, in almost every instance, attorney-client privilege. It might also include attorney work product. You can have a communication with a client that's both. So, um, but as to the, the real question you're asking me, you've sought emails between Joshua and Stephanie Mask and my client. He's listed. So that's attorney-client privilege. And an attorney absolutely has standing to protect the attorney-client privilege. In fact, as you well know, he, and this is one of the problems with, I think, your, your position, is that an attorney has a professional obligation to protect that privilege and to assert that privilege on behalf of a current or even a former client. So uh, the fact is, is that... Um, he has standing to assert it. He's still counsel to his brother and sister-in-law on the state case, as I understand. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he has standing. Okay. That's, that's I understood your position on that. Um, Do, we have any disagreement? Just... Do we have a disagreement on that as to the well, law? I, 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 will, I will be candid with you. I have not done the research on that particular question, because I think I was just sort of thinking about it as under a fact pattern where uh, in a case where, uh, imagine the circumstance in which Richard Mast is not a party to this litigation and he is their state court counsel and he's not involved in the federal case at all. Would he then have third party standing to come in and quash a subpoena on his own behalf 
because the right. because the motion to quash that you are, I presume, the motion to quash that you will file will be Richard Mast's motion to quash, not a motion to quash filed by you on behalf of Joshua and Stephanie Mast. Although maybe you file a joint motion and it's all it's all a wash anyway. But it's an interesting. I, 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 I would, yeah, I get I get it. But I would just yeah. say yes, he does have, and he has a professional obligation to do so. But we can move past that now, I guess. So. Yeah. And um, the other the other thing I will point out, too, though, is that is that request number two would include communications that are. That are, I mean, obviously, I think you look at that and request number two is essentially calling for communications that I think Joshua and Stephanie Mast otherwise would say it's protected by the mayoral communications privilege, which I did not think would involve any. Issue that Richard Mast could raise raise as their attorney. So I'll just flag that just in general. I don't think right. that, oh, yeah, the marital. Yeah, the marital privilege is, is as it were, not at issue here. That's something right. for he, Joshua, or rather Richard. Uh, yeah, Joshua, Stephanie right. and their counsel to raise. Right. I, I will say. To, so anyways, OK, well, with that out of the way um, to your specific question about the Liberty University email, um, I would just. I, I would say that we may have a fundamental disagreement about what the Liberty University um, acceptable use policy covers and does not cover, and what expectation of privacy the users of Liberty University emails have, and whether that's reasonable. I think that ultimately the case, like, you know, I, I grant you that the factual underpinning of the cases that I sent you may not seem applicable here, but the legal principles I think apply, which is what is the user's expectation of privacy in the form of communication that they have chosen. And that's the analysis that I think a court would go through to decide whether a communication that would otherwise be privileged is privileged when it's used through a method of communication for which there's no reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, the case law is what it is, and those that analysis says what it says, and I think that will obviously be the fighting ground for motions practice on this particular issue. But I would just suggest looking at the Liberty University acceptable use policy and see what Liberty itself says about its users' expectations of privacy in information systems hosted and sponsored by the university. Okay, I mean, that's a very generic statement. So I don't know that it moves the ball for this meet and confer. Well, I mean, well, I don't know. What, let me ask you this. What is it that you would like to move the ball on for meet and confer? Because I don't think we'll come to an agreement that... that well, for example... The Liberty University has a law school. They have a clinic and they represent clients and they use the Liberty University server. There is no waiver of the attorney client privilege. Uh, I've scoured their email policy and there's no mention of the attorney client privilege. The fact that um, someone may or may not have a reasonable expectation of privacy vis-a-vis -vis the university monitoring system does not operate 
as a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. If it did, um, I dare say your policy would be would send shockwaves, literally shockwaves, throughout our profession. Because I guarantee you that you and I receive, and everyone else on this call, receive emails from clients. And we then reply to those clients uh, without reading through all the policies of whatever server they may or may not be using. And as I pointed out earlier, and it, it's not just the client. An attorney has a professional obligation to protect the attorney-client privilege. So if you're not checking every email and maybe starting as soon as this phone call ends, this Zoom call ends, to make certain that you haven't breached the attorney-client privilege to your unwitting clients because uh, you haven't checked the server policy, it's going to, that's a, that's a dangerous environment to live in, a very dangerous one. And I just don't believe that any court's going to find, uh, uh, given the way emails are used, that that's the law as a policy matter. But even as a factual matter, Liberty University protects attorney-client privilege based upon um, my understanding of how they treat the clinic, the law clinic, how they treat Liberty Council as associated with the university and working closely with attorneys there, um, and the way the policy has been actually implemented. So um, I understand from this meet and confer, my inference is that um, I guess you're going to wait to hear from Liberty University's counsel in response to the subpoena what their position is. Um, and that, I think, is probably a reasonable position. Um, but um, our position is that they're absolutely privileged and there's no waiver of that privilege. Or I guess it's not even in your position a waiver. It's that there simply is no privilege. So um, you mentioned you mentioned the law school and and clinics. Uh, do you have reason or do you know whether the law school and its clinics have communications that are involved here? No, but I'm talking about the policy. You referenced Liberty University's policy, and that's what I'm speaking to. I understand. Do you have, does the policy, to your knowledge, say anything about the attorney-client privilege? The policy does not mention attorney-client privileges all, as far as I can tell. So in my right. mind, and that says, would... And instead it says no user of information systems has any expectation of privacy in their electronic communications. But again, it's it's the same as if um, I were to have a communication with someone I'm associated with in their domain with my client. And they're there, but they're part of the association, as it were, individuals who um, are at the law firm or around the law firm. Same when you have janitors come and clean up. Um, 
you have a reasonable expectation of privacy that that janitor is not going to pick through the garbage mm -hmm. and take privileged documents and expose them to, you know, David Ushami, willy nilly. So it, in my mind, it's the same thing. You have to, you have to um, make, take a, a position that, at least we take the position that a waiver has to be knowing, and obviously it can be reckless. Um, it can be imputed knowledge, but in this case, it isn't based upon what my understanding of the policies of the university are. I think, I mean, I understand your position from, from what I hear you're saying, though. I think that your issue is not with the policy itself, but with the application or not of the Fourth Circuit's case law about the use of third-party email systems for privileged communications. Because sorry, I think that's, that, that's... Say that again. Well, yeah, I didn't, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't sorry, track sorry. it. I, I just didn't yeah, track yeah. that. In my, head, in my head, I understood the logic of that. Um, the, uh, the issue I think you have is that the Fourth Circuit has case law that says when, you're, when there's an issue about communications that are privileged or not, and we're looking at these communications done through a third party email service uh, or, or an email, I should say, an email uh, service that's hosted by an employer or a third party where it's a privilege given to the user to use that particular right company email, in this case, university email. The ultimate question comes down to whether that test that the courts have applied is the right test to apply in this circumstance, I think, is the well, issue. Well, I think, I think, um, yeah, maybe, uh, although the case that you cited, and again, the 2008, I think it's Simmons case, the child pornography case, I don't find applicable at all. It was a government employee at an intelligence agency um, uh, and so forth, and it dealt with employment, office, reasonable expectation within an office, et cetera. Um, the Hamilton case, which is 2012, hmm. its antecedent barrier is that a husband and wife had plenty of opportunity to have private com marital communications without having to use that particular server, followed by the analysis of the policy. In this case, we're talking about attorney-client where uh, individuals are at quite a distance. Attorney-client communications are always, almost always, in this day and age, done through emails, um, especially post-COVID, but even pre-COVID. So I, I just don't see that Hamilton um, gets us to your position, but we'll find out. Um, and let me just amend, if I may, Kevin, my um, demand, as it were, on the emails. If and um, what I would actually ask is that um, you do not receive any emails from Liberty University that have been identified by our privilege law. That you let Liberty University know that those are accepted from any disclosure because we have asserted either attorney client or work product privilege and 
um, in anticipation of our motion to quash or protective order. Uh, and um, we will make a good faith representation to you now that I fully anticipate the file um, prior to the February 26th date that you provided to me. I'll, I'll, I will, uh, I understand, I think the, uh, I think the way to handle this is the way it would be done in the normal course, which is Liberty University as the recipient of the third party subpoena is under an obligation to produce the documents that it has and those responses as a general matter. If Liberty itself has an objection that it can raise, it can do that on its own behalf. If other individuals being notified of the subpoena have objections they would like to raise, then they can raise those through the appropriate mechanism with the court. Barring objections being raised in a timely fashion, our expectation would be that any recipient of a subpoena would produce the documents. That having been said, if you file your motion before the compliance date, we would agree to communicate to Liberty not to produce to us anything pending the resolution of that motion. That's fair, except with one slight emendation, and that is that while you arranged for a February 26 compliance date, nothing prevents Liberty University from producing intentionally, maybe accidentally, those documents okay. in advance of that date. And I'm operating on that date. Fair enough. So what I'll do then is what, what we'll, we'll agree to do is this. I think this solves a problem. We'll communicate to Liberty that, and we'll copy the right people on this, that we understand that at least Richard Mast will be filing a motion with respect to the subpoena. We'd ask that they not produce anything before the compliance date. Uh, and assuming that the motion is filed ahead of that, then we can you know, confirm with them. I, I understand what you're saying. I don't think there's going to be a certain, I'll put it this way. We'll make sure that Liberty doesn't produce anything to us until it's clear that you're, uh, unless and until it's clear you don't file a motion in a timely, in a timely manner. Fair enough. Okay. okay. And just so you know, I'm going to share the recording of this Zoom call, not only with you, but with uh, Joshua and Stephanie Mass Council, so everybody's on the same page. Fair enough. We can't we can't stop you from telling people what you want to tell them. Okay. Well, I assume you have no objection either, right? I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know. Well, as as we have as we have, I think the remark that we have shared back and forth in other contexts is, I'm not sure there's an objection for me to make. <laughs> Fair enough. Have a good day. Thank you. You too, David.